This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. Welcome back to True Consequences. I'm your host, Eric Carter-Landin. Today we're talking about the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. It is one of the most horrendous unsolved true crime mysteries in New Mexico. The nature of this crime is really difficult to process because it involves the murder of children, which some people may not be able to handle. And if that's the case, that's okay. Feel free to skip this one. But it has been unsolved for 30 years now. And really, it would be awesome if there was some way that somebody could come forward with a tip that could help close this case out. Unfortunately, it really hasn't happened yet. So I'm joined again by Lydia Wolberg, my friend. I uh, thought I'd bring her back on the show and have her join me for this one. I hope you all enjoy this episode. I also want to give a shout out to Lisa W. as well as Autumn G., our two latest patron supporters. Thank you so much. Without you, it'd be very difficult to produce this show. You're helping me continue to provide content. Thank you. I appreciate it. Also, this is the second to last episode of the season, but don't get too sad. I've got a couple things working and you should be hearing from me relatively soon about some other things I have coming out in the pipeline. Okay. If you're interested in supporting this one man show, please go to patreon.com slash true consequences. You can also find me on social media on Facebook and Instagram at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. All right, let's get into the episode. Hey, Lydia. Hey, Eric. Welcome back. Thank you for having me again. So I got a lot of positive feedback about your episode. Oh, that's good. Everybody liked it. Good. Just Uh tell me the good stuff. Okay. Well, I mean, there were some people that said they hated you. Oh, specifically. Yeah. Okay. I'm not surprised. They liked the episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty used to that. (laughs) So uh, you were saying something before we got into it. Yeah, I was thinking on the way over here, just because your, your podcast is New Mexico specific, anyone who I meet from out of state... Um, they're always surprised to hear about like New Mexico expressions, mm-hmm. like especially with my my kids. I say like, "Go make me me's," you know, "Go take it in that." Like, so I think listeners should, if they can, contact you about their New Mexico expressions that they grew up with. Yeah, that's a good one, yeah. And then we can like post them on Facebook or something. Yeah, Paca Power. <laughs> Do you have any? I'm trying to be very professional here. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Try harder. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I'm glad we're laughing now because pretty soon we're not going to be laughing. We are covering one of the most infamous and terrible unsolved cases in New Mexico. Yeah. Okay. For research for this episode, I watched the documentary A Nightmare in Las Cruces. I also, of course, used Wikipedia. Um, there's a few other blogs and a lot of news articles as well as news, um, episodes that I watched related to this. So there's a lot of information out there. I'll post most of it on the show notes. That way you can check it out. Um, but here we go. This is the Las Cruces bowling alley massacre. So I think I'm just going to jump right in. Um, I will say that, uh, actually somebody got mad at me on Facebook and they were like, He spends a lot of time apologizing for explicit content and it's not even that explicit. And they were like really kind of angry about it. And, and I, you know, I think that everybody has their own tolerance for what's too much for them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel like 
giving a warning just kind of lets people decide if they want to listen to it or not. So I'm going to give another warning because I don't care. I'm going to just keep doing that. This does involve murder of children. So if that's something that's difficult for you to listen to, you may not want to listen to this episode. That's a really important thing to highlight. Just I don't know too many people can tolerate hearing that stuff. Yeah, it's hard. Okay, so let's talk about Las Cruces. So Las Cruces is the second largest city in New Mexico. It is approximately 50 miles north of El Paso, Texas. And right now has a population just slightly over 100,000 people. It sits in the Mesilla Valley and the Oregon Mountains, which are really pretty. They're part of the Rocky Mountain chain. They actually rise to the east of Las Cruces. So it's similar to Albuquerque in the sense that you have this giant mountain in the east, little valley, and there's a city there. Um, The Rio Grande flows to the west of the city. The city itself is in the middle of the vast Chihuahuan Desert, which covers parts of Mexico, parts of California, a lot of New Mexico and Arizona. And Las Cruces is actually a lot warmer than northern New Mexico. Yeah, very popular with the snowbirds, retirees. Mm-hmm. And it's so warm, in fact, that desert palm trees grow abundantly, which is not something that we have here in, New Me- in Albuquerque. Las Cruces is home to New Mexico State University, which is one of the largest public universities in the state, and it is the only land-grant university in the state. Um, in 1990, when this all happened... Las Cruces was a sleepy town with just over 60,000 residents. And the community really wasn't used to major crime issues like Albuquerque or other large cities experienced until the winter of 1990 when Las Cruces was shaken by a senseless and horrible tragedy. This is the unsolved case of the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. On the morning of February 10th, 1990, a 911 dispatcher receives a frantic call from a terrified young lady. She is 12-year-old, Melissa Repass. Melissa informs the dispatcher that she had been shot along with six other people. She tells the dispatcher that the shooting occurred inside the Las Cruces Bowl on Amador Avenue. She goes on to describe the fact that she is the only person who is conscious and that they were victims of a robbery gone bad. She also states that there is a fire in the office where she is. First responders arrived to a grisly scene. February 10th was like any typical morning for Stephanie Sinak. Stephanie was the daughter of Bowling Alley owner Ronald Sinak. And as the day manager, she was conducting her opening duties. Stephanie's daughter, Melissa, and her friend, Amy, were in the office with her. Melissa and Amy often came to work with Stephanie as they would work in the Bowling Alley's daycare center. Bowling Alley cook Ida Hogan was preparing for the day and getting her lunch prep completed. She actually recently had changed her schedule to allow for her to work days instead of her usual evening shift. And it was definitely what seemed to be an average day for everybody until it took a dark turn. Stephanie's brother, Steve, stopped by to pick up some items that he needed, and he noted that there were two suspicious men on the side of the building, but he tried not to think too much about it. He also noted that the front door of the bowling alley was unlocked, even though they hadn't opened yet. He walked to the office, picked up what he came for, and told Stephanie that she needed to lock the door. As he left, he noticed that the men were still there. So, at approximately 8.20 a.m., two men enter the unlocked door of the bowling alley. One of the men went into the kitchen and used his gun to force Ida into the manager's office. The other man found the two young girls and walked them to the office as well. So apparently, uh, Stephanie had given Melissa and Amy some change so they could go buy some food from the vending machines. So this other guy found them at the vending machines and marched them to the office at gunpoint. 
Both men ordered Stephanie to open the safe, which they robbed most of its contents. So allegedly they took about four or $5,000. Nobody's really sure, but there was still some money left behind in the safe, mm. which nobody really understands why. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, and then they forced everybody in the office to lie on the ground face first. So this is where it takes kind of a really sad turn. I mean, it's sad already, but it gets even worse now. So Steve Turan was a young bowling alley mechanic. He was also in the military. He had aspirations of being a police officer and he walked into the alley unaware of what was happening. He was actually coming in to work his shift as the bowling alley mechanic, and he brought his two daughters with him and planned to drop them off at the daycare center while he worked. He didn't see anybody in the daycare center, so he continued to walk to the office with his two daughters hand in hand. As he entered the office, he stumbled upon the robbery in progress. He started the robbers, and he and his daughters are also forced to the ground. So his daughters, he had a two-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little girl with him. Uh, the two robbers then proceed to shoot every hostage multiple times at close range. They started a fire in the bowling alley office. Allegedly, there was an eyewitness that was in a nearby building across the street on the roof. And he saw the two men running from the bowling alley. Mm. So Melissa Rapace manages to crawl towards the phone and dial 911. She'd been shot five times. That's incredible that she had the wherewithal to crawl, mm-hmm. knowing that she had to get help. Yeah. Um, you know, she, her mom had just been shot. Her mm-hmm. friend had just been shot. Yep. And then she had a bullet lodged in her head, mm-hmm. too, right? She was shot in the head. Yeah. And the so I watched the documentary, A Nightmare in Las Cruces, and that's by Charlie Minn. It's got an interesting take, but it does have a lot of uh, graphic photos of the actual shooting, which is really difficult to see, you know, bodies lying there in the office, but it's such a senseless act of violence, you know, in a time when Las Cruces was really not that big of a city and probably not used to anything that intense. But Melissa, as an adult, is being interviewed in that documentary and she talks about how she had just like recently had some kind of assembly at school where they talked about dialing 911 for help. So she like that stuck in her head and she remembered that. And so she like crawls over there. You know, I'm sure she's scared. I'm sure she's in a lot of pain. And you can actually listen to the 911 tape. It's really distressing. But she's so clear about mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm asking for help. I mean, it's amazing. She's a child. She just experienced this and she was able to complete that call. Yeah. Yeah. And she, like, it's really sad. The dispatcher asks her, you know, who's been shot? How many people? And you hear her, she like counts them out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then she does it again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And the dispatcher is being interviewed in this documentary as well. He's like, that was the worst part for me was knowing that she was like actually counting bodies around her as a 12 year old girl. So the police actually got there really fast and they, you know, they were trying to get her out of the office because she was the only one that was conscious and the 911 operator told her not to hang up. So she like, didn't know what to do. She just kept saying, I can't, I can't leave. I can't leave. And, and until the 911 operator told her it's okay, go with the police. She was determined to be on the phone the entire time. It was just heartbreaking. You know, she sees her mom, and her friend, and like you said, everybody around her just completely uh, brutalized by these two men. 
I think what I read is that um, uh, one of the weapons used was a twenty-two caliber, mm-hmm. which I don't know too much about guns, but close range, obviously, it was enough to cause serious damage. Yeah. And that, including that the majority of their victims were children. Right. Like you said, 2 to 14 or 13. Right. Yeah. So a twenty two caliber handgun is, is pretty small, actually. So you would have to be close range. And I think that's probably why they fired so many rounds into everybody. But Melissa's uh, quick thinking and her action and bravery led to um, saving the lives of her mom, Stephanie, Ida Hogeen, the cook, as well as her own. Unfortunately, uh, Steve Turan, his six-year-old daughter Paula, and their two and his two-year-old daughter Valerie, as well as thirteen-year-old Amy Hauser, were all killed. And the photos online um, and that documentary, like Eric said, has those you know crime scene photos. So definitely not um, for the faint of heart. It's very troubling to see those images of those little girls on the ground. Yeah, and and the documentary itself can be a little tough because they reenact it and you hear a baby crying and then they have it like with the background of of gunshots being fired and it's just a little bit a little bit too much in my opinion but um it definitely gets the point across that you know these were children three children that were murdered brutally again like i said this is one of the most gruesome and horrible crimes that has ever happened in las cruces um in in 1999 stephanie sinak actually died from complications due to her injuries, um, which was, you know, nine years later, but she was still having some physical problems because of being shot multiple times. Her daughter, Melissa, um, in the documentary, talks about how this trauma has changed her mom or had changed her mom. And her mom went from being like an outgoing, bubbly personality to this really reclusive, fearful person who didn't want to leave the house, who really was afraid of of everything. Uh, it really it shook her mom and it shook that whole family to its core. Uh, and while Mo- Melissa lost her mom and her best friend that awful day, Steve Turan's wife lost her entire family in one day. Yeah, there's some um, local news um, interviews online with Steve Turan's widow, and obviously it still haunts her. I mean, it's been over 30 years, but not having answers, losing her babies, losing her husband, and she just describes him as just a wonderful father mm-hmm. and a protector, and and she believes that he wouldn't have gone down without a fight. Yeah, and even his brother talks about, you know, he was he was one of those people that was just very... Uh, strong-willed. He didn't tolerate a lot. He expected a lot of everybody around him. He wanted everybody to be their best. Just the way that he was taken was so jarring for that family because he was such a strong person, you know, let alone the daughters. I mean, that I just can't imagine in an instant, you know, losing your entire family. It's got to be, I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's got to be completely devastating. Yeah. So still to this day, like Eric mentioned, it's unsolved. Mm-hmm. Um, police note that usually around the anniversary, they will get an influx of tips coming in. Um, so let's talk a little bit about why why it has been you know so difficult to crack the case. It's so heinous. Mm-hmm. We have witnesses. There are sketches of the alleged perpetrators. Yep. So... What happened there that has made it so complicated for police to crack this one? 
I think that, um, you know, the police did everything that they, they could at the time to figure out what happened. Um, in fact, right after they transported everybody to the hospital, they set up numerous roadblocks in and out of the city to try to see what was going on, see if there were people trying to escape, trying to flee. Um, that turned nothing up. There were helicopters and ground searches by police, by border patrol, by customs, and even the army got involved. Uh, the two sketches were created of the suspects based on the eyewitness accounts of Melissa as well as uh, Steve Sinak. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody really had any information about these two men. There's a lot of rumors going around even to this day about uh, some of this thing. Like there was a woman who claimed that she was harboring these two individuals in her home and she was a known drug addict. Mm. And so she told the police that, you know, they were in her house and she knew where they went and all of this. And then eventually her story changed and she said, no, I really just wanted to say this so that I could get some street cred and maybe get some drugs out of it, which doesn't really make any sense to me. I don't know how you would expect to get drugs from lying about having two murderers in your house. Yeah. So that was, a, that was a strange one. And then there was also a lot of uh, rumors about the owner of the bowling alley, Ronald Sinak. A lot of people think even to this day that he was involved in some shady business dealings. Um, some people thrown away, thrown around the word uh, mafia. I don't know. There's, there's really no proof of anything like that. Some people have also have a theory that maybe it was related to some sort of revenge from a cartel. Mm -hmm. He owed money to people. And again, we have nothing to base this off, off of other than what other people have theorized. Right. Um, and their basis for that theory is just how unusual it is not only for the victims to have been shot execution style, uh, but for victims to have been children. Mm -hmm. um, and like Eric mentioned in the beginning, there was money taken, but it wasn't a large sum of money. And on top of that, they took the time to start a fire, um, which, again, if you thought that this was some sort of desperate armed robbery, it seems odd that mm -hmm. they would stay behind to try to start a fire to get rid of evidence. Right. Yeah. It's hard to know exactly what happened, um, but there there are a lot of theories out there. Um, Ronald Sinek has, you know, denied any involvement with drug cartels with the mafia or with shady business dealings. He's denied that he's had any kind of reason or has created any kind of reason for this to happen. Uh, Charlie Min, who is the person who created the documentary, A Nightmare in Las Cruces, believes and has stated on several news interviews that this was a message to Ronald, that it was some sort of scare tactic. Like a warning? Like a warning. Uh, and, and there was actually an interview on one of the El Paso news stations with him, as well as the current investigating detective. And uh, Charlie goes into this theory and, and the detective kind of bristles a little bit and says there's really no evidence to support anything like that. And uh, we, while we do have some leads that we're working, there's nothing that we can talk about because this is still an active investigation and I'm not going to make claims about something without having any proof. And so, you know, not to say that I don't necessarily believe Charlie but I am skeptical about some of that. Um, but it is, I think it's hard to wrap your mind around something so heinous. Right. Without having some sort of reason. Right. And to think that this could have just been random, senseless, and 
impulsive, it's probably too much for people to be able to handle. Yeah. And obviously we are you know, experts in that field, but everything about it just seems so planned out and methodical. And again, it's over 30 years later. And of course, we still occasionally receive tips, but the fact that this hasn't been solved, it's its really unbelievable. I mean, it's crazy. And I, I believe police believe, um, are under the impression that the fire was st- started intentionally to try to destroy evidence. Mm-hmm. Um Luckily, the a large part of the fire was contained, but they did succeed in getting rid of a lot of evidence. Yeah. So that's very frustrating. And the fact that nobody ever saw these men again, right. knowingly saw them again, um, supports that theory that um, these men flooded to Mexico mm-hmm. or, again, that it was maybe somehow related to a gang or cartel-related or mob-related. Well, I think it does really look you know, very similar to cartel motives. If you think about all the violence that happens in Juarez and, and there's really no regard for age or gender or really anything. Anybody, and Juarez is just a stone's throw away from El yeah, Paso. Yeah, it's, from a, yeah, it's like less than an hour away. Yeah. It could it could have easily been something like that. And, and the bloodshed and the horror of it does resemble, you know, what you would see in a cartel killing where they just don't, if you're there, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. There's no regard for anything, really. Yeah. So, unfortunately, you know, this isn't one that we can put a bow on and say this is who did it and this is who was responsible and they were caught and they were sentenced to to jail time. Um, In fact, it is still an open investigation, even though it is a cold case. They do have a detective actively working this case. And if you do have any tips or if you've seen anything or know anything, uh, you're asked to call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. Or you can text CRIMES, C-R-I-M-E-S, to 274-637. Use the keyword LCTIPS. And uh, you are completely allowed to remain anonymous if you choose to. So not sure that, you know, we've done any justice to this case today. I'm sure there's a lot of details that I've left out. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add? I would say definitely get online and look at those sketches. If you have any sort of relationship to new mexico or las cruces get online look at the sketches and hopefully maybe one day they'll those families will get some closure yeah another interesting thing is melissa said that there were two african-american men uh on the 911 call she was very clear about that and then later uh they said that in another statement she said they well they could have been hispanic maybe like really dark-skinned hispanic men as well. But if you look at the sketches and I'll, I'll post them on the True Consequences website as well as on all our social media channels, they do look African American. Um, but I do see how they could potentially be, you know, maybe Mexican nationals who are maybe are just like darker skinned people. Yeah, it's it's tough, especially because she was obviously she had just been shot in mm-hmm. the head and and that I think that's one of the frustrating parts of being a detective, I could only imagine is trying to piecemeal together everybody's version of events mm-hmm. and it's impacted by the trauma, the injuries and just pure shock of what they've just experienced and to try to get any sort of statement out to the, to the media and to people out there to help solve it. I think it's really challenging. Yeah. Uh, it's so frustrating. It's definitely a very frustrating case and, 
uh, definitely feel for the family members that lost multiple people that day and continue to grieve because there's really no resolution. There's no justice in this case. And uh, it's hard to believe that it's gone 30 years without any significant movement. Yeah. And that's what still it's, I think it's just such a painful thing to, to learn about and read about, to imagine that there was a human Mm -hmm. who was comfortable with sitting a two-year-old and a six-year-old and a 13-year-old and 14-year-old down and shooting them in the head. Yeah. Not, I mean, no regard for life whatsoever. I mean, that is just so heartbreaking. I can't imagine. Yeah. I think uh, in the documentary too, you see uh, the mom of the two little girls and she's talking about how that killer must have looked her two-year-old daughter in the eyes as he shot her because of where the bullet entered her mm-hmm. her skull that there was no way that he would not have seen her face which like i can't even comprehend that action like i can't i i don't know what kind of person can do that and be okay with themselves right. Yeah, so it's definitely one of those cases that is not only hanging over the Las Cruces police force, mm-hmm. but it's hanging over our state just because it was so senseless, so violent, so heinous. And it involved babies, yeah. like little kids. Yeah. So, I mean, if if anything can come of this, I don't know, but I I would just hope one day that there's some sort of closure. Yeah, and as you can imagine, I mean, this has been all over national Mm -hmm. and local news it's been on unsolved mysteries it's been on america's most wanted you know there's just a ton of information out there but as much as we know about what happened is equally as much as we don't know right about what happened which is uh, super frustrating and very sad so again if you know anything at all call crime stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS or text CRIMES to 274637 with the keyword LC tips. Don't know what else to say here. Yeah. When I sat down to research this, it took me like a while to get through it because it's just such heavy stuff, you know. And uh, and then I like sit down to do this and I'm just like, okay, now we're done 20 minutes later. It's, All right. It's weird. Uh, but anyway, I do want to say Merry Christmas to you, Lydia. Um, it is Christmas today that we're actually recording today this. Today is Christmas, yeah. So you guys will probably hear it sometime in uh, January is my expectation. But um, I'm glad you're back hanging out with me today. And, uh, you know, again, like I said, a lot of people were very, gave positive feedback about the prison riot. And uh, I thought you did a great job researching Thank it. Thank you. And hopefully we'll do it again soon. Oh, I'm sure we will. Definitely nice to have somebody here talking about this stuff so I'm not just talking to myself. All right. Well, I guess that's going to be it for today. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico. Thanks again for listening to True Consequences. Follow us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. True Consequences is hosted, written, and produced by me, your host, Eric Carter-Landine. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico.